Ping. I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today from Acts chapter 8. Verses 1 to 25, chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city of in the city, and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw 
that the spirit was given, given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability to the, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For see, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John turned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. You may sit, sit down, please. Well, this morning, after a bit of an unexpected break, we get to come back to the book of Acts after three Sundays away from it. And what we come back to is a disaster, quite frankly. When the church is losing the majority of its members, either fleeing the region or being put in prison or worse, and when there is a powerful enemy bent on the destruction of the church, and he appears to be very effective at what he is doing, surely that is a disaster. After all, it's when the church grows and gets, gets bigger. It's when people are joining the congregation that things are going well. A shrinking church is obviously evidence of trouble, isn't it? No sane church's strategic plan would factor in what we see in Acts chapter 8. And yet, what we see in Acts chapter 8 is a turning point, not only in the book of Acts, but in the history of the church, right from the beginning until now. What happens here in Acts chapter 8 is the next step in what is the explosive, effective growth of God's kingdom through the church. And once again, we're forced to consider that maybe it's in the heart of crisis that we find ourselves dead center in God's perfect will. The Church of Jesus Christ has almost 2,000 years of history at this point, and throughout its history, embedded throughout its history, there are these moments, these people, these events that are very, very significant and, and help mark the course, set the direction for the church. 
the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine, the writings of Thomas Aquinas, the invention of the printing press, the ministries of Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley, and the great revivals of the 18th and 19th centuries, the Azusa Street revival of the early 20th century that sparked the whole Pentecostal and charismatic movement. I mean, church history is marked with so many of these kinds of moments and people. Calvin and Luther and Augustine and people like that. Billy Graham. But if I had to pick, and I'm about to, the three greatest, the three most defining moments in the life of the church from the beginning till now... I would pick these. Number one would be Pentecost. The birth of the church, when the Holy Spirit came in power on the followers of Jesus Christ and launched this whole movement. At number three, I would probably place the Reformation and Martin Luther. This calling back of God's people to the, the word of God and to the great doctrine that we are not saved by what we do, we're saved by the grace of God. There's a major setting back on course of God's people, and it's for 400, 500 years we have been affected by that, and rightly so. And in between, number two, I would place Acts chapter eight. Just exactly what we have just read. It was a defining moment in the life of the church, and it would be impossible, quite frankly, for us to overestimate how important this chapter is. In fact, we are a church today because of what happens in Acts chapter eight. So we're going to talk about that this morning. Acts chapter 7 ends with the death of Stephen, a high-profile, charismatic, very effective leader of the church. And up until this point, there have been threats and there have been beatings, but Stephen is the first one to actually be killed because he is a follower of of Jesus Christ. This is a whole new ball game. The, the opposition to the followers of Jesus has just ramped up to a whole new level. And in the account of the death of Stephen, we are introduced to a character who has become familiar to all Christians, Saul of Tarsus, but we know him better, of course, as the Apostle Paul, the great missionary to the Gentiles and the greatest Christian theologian that history has ever known. But before he was St. Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee by training, violent defender of Judaism. He was probably, just her background, he was probably one of the Jews from Cilicia that we read about in chapter 6 and verse 9, who was opposing Stephen. He was present at Stephen's death, probably in a position of authority, because he was not participating in it, but the witnesses laid their cloaks at his feet, and after Stephen died, Saul gave his official sanction, which is how chapter 8 begins, and Saul approved of his execution. And with Stephen's death, a great persecution breaks out that Saul leads. And Christians scatter from Jerusalem, but as they go, they preach the word of God concerning Jesus Christ. And so it is that the gospel comes to Samaria. And comes with great power. And Acts chapter 8 tells this story. This is the moment when the gospel, the church, the work of God in the world crosses a border from being just Jewish to being global. And that's why we're here. And it starts here in chapter 8. 
Now, Jesus had said once to his followers, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The life of being a follower of Jesus is a life of surrender. And we see this played out in Acts chapter 8. Specifically, we see three surrenders. And these are very common surrenders. They're timeless in that all Christians and all churches, as they have gotten saved and grown in faith and become effective in the kingdom of God, all of them have had to face these three things. And if there has been forward movement in the church in history, it is because these three surrenders have happened in the lives of God's people. So let me ask you this morning, do you long to know God better? Do you have this desire to be more effective for his glory in his kingdom? Do you long for a more robust, healthy, and vibrant experience of God? If you do, then it's worth asking today, have I made these three surrenders? And do we as a church together, do we long for greater fruit and impact as a church? Do we long for deeper unity and joy? Do we want a healthier faith together? Then we also need to consider these three things as well. Have we surrendered them? And if not, are we prepared to? So, what are these three surrenders? Well, going to Acts chapter 8 again. Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. The NIV says destroying the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The first and greatest surrender that has to take place is, simply put, the surrender of self. The surrender of self. This violent act that was the death of Stephen sparked a spree of violence against the whole church. Saul was ravaging the church. And that, that word, ravaging, the Greek word there, is, is the word that you would use to describe a wild beast tearing at a dead animal. I don't know if you can picture that. Kind of in his jaws, just flailing back and forth, flesh flying everywhere. That's, that's the kind of violence that Saul was trying to perpetrate against the church. Paul later would describe himself at this time as being in a raging fury. Well, what does a raging fury like that look like? What does Paul's ravaging of the church look like? Well, he dragged off men and women, and we're going to come back to that phrase a little later, and put them in prison. And more than that, Saul also later said about himself at this time that he actively played a part in having Christians killed. And so very suddenly, for these followers of Jesus, this meant that their very lives were in danger. Their very lives were in danger. Now, in a sense, it didn't have to be. It would have been very easy, I think, for them to, th to say, well, I'm not sure that I'm ready to lose my family, my own life, my freedom, 
or to flee Jerusalem and go to some other place. Maybe I better just tone it down a little bit. Maybe I better compromise some. Maybe even back away from this commitment to Jesus and lay low. And at least then I'll have safety, I'll have security, I'll still have my home. But so many of them didn't, didn't do that. Faced with this choice between Jesus and life, they went with Jesus. They surrendered their very lives. They surrendered their sense of ownership and right to their, their life and self and everything that was a part of that. Now, Jesus had said earlier in the very first chapter of Acts that his followers were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And up until the end of chapter 7, they had not yet done that. They had been pretty Jerusalem-centered, Jerusalem-focused. Now, were they disobedient? Some people have suggested that the church was, but I don't think so. Everything that we have read so far in Acts has indicated a profound commitment to obedience and to sensing and following what the Holy Spirit was doing. But now it is time for them to break out from Jerusalem to the next circle of impact, Judea and Samaria. And so they are scattered. And thus the second section of Acts begins. Acts chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 are essentially concerned with the mission in Judea and Samaria. But what did it take to launch them beyond Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria? Persecution. Persecution. Oswald Chambers has said this. If you yourself do not cut the lines that tie you to the dock, God will have to use a storm to sever them and to send you out to sea. Put everything in your life afloat upon God, going out to sea on the great swelling tide of his purpose, and your eyes will be opened. If you believe in Jesus, you are not to spend all your time in the calm waters just inside the harbor, full of joy but always tied to the dock. You have to get out past the harbor into the great depths of God. And again, if we don't, if we don't cut the ropes ourselves and go out to sail on the great purposes of God, God will send a storm that will sever the ropes and take us out to sea. And that's what just happened here. The church, vibrant, alive, profoundly impactful, having favor with all the people, but just in Jerusalem. And God needed the gospel of Jesus Christ to go to the others in Judea and Samaria and ultimately to Rome in the book of Acts and to Calgary and across the world. The simple truth is that our experience of God, our depth as Christians, and our impact on the world will be directly proportional to the surrender of our lives. The surrender of our very selves. Now, it's easy to say a phrase like surrender our lives. Well, what does that mean? It means that we hold loosely to everything that is a part of our lives. 
And often when a sermon like this or a point like this gets made, um, I'll say something about our time, our finances, our leisure activities, you know, kind of the stuff that makes up our day-to-day lives. And we need to surrender that. And maybe God will ask for it. Maybe he won't. But maybe he'll ask for it. And in the name of Jesus, we need to be able to let it go. But it's a whole lot bigger than that as well, isn't it? By surrendering our lives and our very selves, we surrender our future. We surrender the people closest to us. We surrender the right to make decisions for ourselves. And that if I'm going to go this way and choose this career, go live in this place or retire and live this kind of life, and God in some way says, I need you to do this, then we let that go. Don't need a nice home in Abbotsford necessarily to be in the center of God's will. If God needs me in another place or to interact with a certain person, And when we became a follower of Jesus, we made a declaration, not just that Jesus died on the cross, that our sins might be forgiven. We made the declaration that Jesus is, say it, what's the word? Lord. Do we know when we say it how all-encompassing that is? He did some baptisms on September the 11th, and if you remember the question that I asked, to those who are being baptized, I said, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for your sins and rose again, and do you promise to live your life in love and obedience to him? And they said, yes. And I baptized them. And all of us who would name ourselves as followers of Jesus, by definition, we have said that. We might not have used the words, yes, I promise to live my life in love and obedience, but by being a follower of Jesus, we have made the declaration that we belong to him and he is our Lord and he is master, he is in charge. And part of what that means is that anything that he wants to do, he can do. And every Christian has to come to the place where we surrender our very lives and selves to him. The first Christians did. We, as the most recent Christians, do. That's the first surrender. The second surrender is the surrender of prejudice. And this falls under the umbrella of surrendering our our lives and ourselves. There's nothing that doesn't fall under that umbrella. Now those who are scattered, verse 4, went about preaching the gospel. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. 
They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, like their, their first stringers they're sending down, who came down and prayed for them, the Samaritans, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. In the time of persecution, the followers of Jesus left Jerusalem and were scattered, went all over the place. And some of them, and Philip, went down to Samaria. And we read that and just kind of read the events that follow. It would be probably impossible for me to communicate with words the level of hostility that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. Going back centuries, um, in about 921 BC, the kingdom of Israel became split into two. Ten tribes retained the name Israel. Two tribes took the name Judah. And the two tribes were ruled by a succession of kings from David's dynasty. The ten tribes of Israel were ruled by a succession of different kings from different families. Whoever killed the king got to be king, and that happened all the time. And for the next little while, they were sometimes at war with each other and some hostility there. 200 years into that, 721 BC, Israel was conquered by the Assyrians and was, the land was resettled and there was a lot of intermarriage. And that part of the land became known as Samaria. It was a, a half-breed mix of people, part, part Jew, part whatever else from all over the place. Then the Babylonians conquered Judah and took them in exile, but they kept themselves pure. They didn't intermarry. They remained religious Jews, and when they were able to return, they were 100% Jewish blood. And for the next four or 500 years after that, you had full-blooded Israelites, Jews, and half-breed Samaritans, and they were just at odds with each other all the time. The hostility was so incredible. They would have nothing to do with each other. Do you remember John chapter 4 when Jesus sits down at a well in, near a Samaritan village and the woman comes out and they begin to talk and she says to Jesus, basically, what are you talking to me for? You know that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And yet Philip toodles off down to the city and the region of Samaria. And I wonder sometimes what it took for him just to be able to do that. What kind of prejudice that had been inbred in him and cultivated for so many years that he, for the sake of Jesus, was able to overcome. And he preaches and does miracles and people are healed, demons are cast out, all kinds of incredible things are going on. People are getting saved left and right. Philip baptizes them, both men and women. You see how Saul is destroying the church by dragging off men and women, but God is growing his church by saving 
men and women. And news of all this comes back to Jerusalem, to the apostles who are still there, and they hear that Samaria has received the word of God. It's a bit of a technical term. It has to do with, with getting saved, accepting the gospel. Chapter 11, verse 1 uses the very same phrase, that they have received the word of God. And the apostles are thinking, Samaria? Received the word of God? Surely not. I can't imagine that God would have anything to do with them. But they go down, Peter and John, and they look around and they see what God is doing and they lay their hands on the people and the Holy Spirit of God comes upon them and what that signifies to them, because when the Holy Spirit came on the people, it came visibly or audibly. They would see things, they would hear things. They would be praising God in tongues or there would be tongues of fire on their heads. I mean, it, was, it would be obvious to everyone that the Holy Spirit was there. And so Peter and John come down to Samaria and witness the reality that God is at work and is saving the Samaritans and is giving to them his own Holy Spirit in the very same way, to the very same extent that God had done that to them, the apostles, the Jews. And they were able to see that they were suddenly on equal footing together. That God is at work in and God loves and is present in the Samaritans just as much as he is in us. And they had to probably surrender a level of prejudice. And we do too. We do too. I'm not sure how much of our prejudices have to do with racial questions. Those are always the obvious ones. But we have prejudices to overcome. We have financial prejudice of people who don't use their money well or for whatever circumstances, whatever reason, are poor, they're living in poverty, and we just kind of can't help but elevate ourselves a little bit over them. And our ministry to them is a little bit condescending. But God loves the poor. Sometimes our prejudice is theological. Car and I driving home from camp last night, turned the radio on and heard uh, a Catholic preacher talking about um, the Catholic church and that that's the true church and the authority. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, you know, that's, I'm prejudiced. He's just wrong. He's not treating the scripture well. And yet, he was from the scripture, and he was talking about Jesus. And I don't doubt that we're brothers, and we think differently on some things. But we're brothers, and God loves him and is active in his life and ministry. Why do I think that I'm in any way superior to him? And I have prejudice to overcome. Some of our prejudices age, right? Young people think, Old people are just done and they should just be quiet and let us do our thing. And old people sometimes think young people, they just, they don't care and they do all this crazy stuff. And, and yet if you're, if you're in your 80s and somebody in our church is in their teens, you're we're brothers and sisters. We're on the same level playing field. We might like different things or do things differently, but my goodness, we're in a family we're in the family of God. And sometimes just to be able to worship and do things together means we have to let go of our prejudice and be one in Christ. 
We have to surrender. We have to surrender. And I could list another dozen or so. We have to let go of our prejudices. We have to stop thinking subconsciously or consciously that we are in any way better or God likes us better. Or we have more of a lock on what God is doing than somebody else because they're just poor or another nationality or too old or too young or something. We have to let go of our prejudices. That's where unity comes from. The third surrender is the surrender of ambition, specifically self-ambition. Here's how Simon's story plays out. He was a magician, as we've heard, amazing people with his wonderful powers and miracles. But he, hears the gospel, gets saved, gets baptized. Now when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now Simon was a believer, genuine enough as far as that went, I think. But Jesus himself disparaged those in John chapter 2, those whose faith was based only on a miracle. Wow, this person's healed. Wow, you can give the Holy Spirit just by laying on your hands? Wow, I'm pretty impressed with that. Maybe more impressed than I am with the death of Jesus for my sins, you know? A real grounding in faith is not just on miracles. And Simon was ambitious. And you know what? Ambition is good, by the way. First Timothy, that anyone who aspires to serve as an elder desires a noble thing. You're encouraged to aspire to great things, even great things in the kingdom. Ambition is good. Self-ambition is not good. The difference between Philip and Simon is that Simon boasted of himself and wanted things for himself. I want a great ministry. I want a TV deal and I want to fill stadiums and have people send in money. Philip proclaimed Christ. He spoke to them of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. It's like Paul in Philippians 1. He was in prison and while he was in prison, other people were taking advantage of that to make a name for themselves as preachers. But Paul said, I don't care as long as they're talking about Jesus. I can rejoice in that. The story of Simon ends with a bit of a lame statement, I think, where Simon, instead of repenting and praying, asks Peter, will you pray then? Just, will you pray for me so that what you've described doesn't take place? And I don't know if it was genuine repentance on Simon's part. I don't know. History has um, told us, legend, whatever, tradition, that it wasn't a genuine repentance and there arose in the history of the church this thing called simony, named after this Simon. Simony is when you use the things of God in order to accumulate 
money or position or power for yourself. Um, when you would buy, buy a priesthood or buy the right to be a bishop or the selling of indulgences, making money and using the things of God to do that. We call that simony. Not a huge issue for us today, but simony, I think, exists when people use ministry as a way to make a name for themselves or to make themselves rich or when we use our service in the church to show how spiritual we are. I mean, that's, that's all simony. That's all self-ambition, and we have to surrender it. We have to remember, as you've heard me say a hundred times in the last year, that it is all about Jesus. I want to be a great preacher. I really do. But if I want to be a great preacher so that you say, Ken's a great preacher. I want to be a great preacher so that the word of God concerning Jesus Christ comes to people with power. But there can be a fine line between those two things. And self-ambition or a Christ-centered, healthy ambition, there's a real difference. And we need to surrender our sense of self and our ambitions. Three surrenders, self, prejudice, ambition that all Christians come to and all churches come to at some point. And the beauty of surrender in the kingdom of God is that it's not a giving up of anything. It is a gaining of everything. It's the same principle Jesus articulated several times when he said things like anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. Or don't seek after all the stuff, but seek first his kingdom and all that you need, that God knows you need, will given to you, be given to you as well. We gain when we surrender. We get more when we sacrifice. We live by dying. And when we surrender, you know what's beautiful? We are like God. Because God surrendered. Jesus surrendered. God the Father gave his son. Jesus, at the right hand of God with all the glory of heaven, went from there to a stable. Being a baby born to a poverty-stricken virgin. God, Jesus, for our sakes, though he was rich, became poor. He surrendered his life on the cross, he surrendered his prejudice. Now imagine, is there any greater gulf than between God and sinners? But God loved, Jesus came, he died. And he surrendered his ambition. There's a sense in which he didn't. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And because of his humility, God exalted him to the right hand of God. But what's interesting is that Jesus didn't do it for himself. He did it out of obedience to his Father and love for us. And even though we are all about Jesus, there's a very real sense in which Jesus wasn't all about Jesus. And he surrendered his self-ambition and saved us in the process. So I want to challenge, encourage us to think about and to live a life of surrender. And all of us, in some way, shape, or form, are being called at any given moment to surrender something. You might know what it is. If you don't, I pray that God will make it clear to you. 
but that you will surrender and that we as a church will also surrender and in our surrender know God, serve him, love one another all in much greater fullness than we do. So let's pray for that. Let's pray. Jesus, have you, as you have surrendered, you call us to surrender. And yet even that surrender is a sacrifice of praise. It means that we, we give up and surrender. We lay something down before you, but it prompts joy and fullness and praise. Will you help us to do that? Will you show us, each of us and all of us together as a church, will you show us what it is that we need to surrender, what it is that we are clinging to just a little too tightly. And will you help us to let it go before you in order that we might receive greater from you. Jesus, thank you for your surrender, the surrender of your life and of your glory for a time in order that we may share your life and your glory. We pray in your name, O Lord. Amen.